God, we worship you tonight because you're holy and you're good and you created all things and you stepped into your creation and you became Emmanuel, God, with us. So God, I pray that tonight as we walk through really one simple verse in John, God, that you would explode in our minds the craziness of the fact that you would become flesh. God, for those of us who are used to this idea of a baby in a manger and Christmas and all of that stuff, God, I pray that tonight you would just give us a new sense of awe and a new sense of wonder for the fact that you became man. And you dwelt with us. And you hurt like us. And you were lonely like us. You were denied and rejected like many of us have been. You felt the pain we feel. And you were tempted like us, but yet without sin. So God, we worship you tonight. Lord, I pray you'd speak loudly through your word, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to grab it and go to the book of John, chapter 1. We're doing this thing in our house um, called Advent, and it's a, kind of a, a liturgical thing. Um, Phil will appreciate that. Um, it is uh, something that the early church began to do to... During the Christmas season, um, look forward to December 25th, which was a representation of the fact that Jesus was born. He became flesh. And so um, we're kind of doing a little bit different. There's a thing that you can do um, called a Jesse tree. And those of us um, may know that um, Jesse was David's father. And from the line of David, Christ the king would come. And so the Jesse tree is basically, there's a passage in Isaiah 11 that talks about that Jesus would be a shoot coming out of the branch of the tree of Jesse. And so the Jesse tree is basically every, every night we sit down with our daughter Ava and we color, or she colors a different picture from church history, or really from Old Testament history. And it started with Adam, and then we did Rebecca, and we've done all these things. And, and then every night she puts a different ornament on the Jesse tree. And then eventually on December 25th, she will put Jesus on the Jesse tree. So it's just kind of a way to teach. And so we also do Advent, which is the lighting of a candle each night to represent the darkness being evaded by the light of the world, Jesus. And so we're doing this stuff in our house. We're trying to teach her what Christmas is, is about. And so we're doing the first Jesse tree one night, and she's coloring Adam. And she's coloring, and I'm sitting there trying to tell her the story. Now, man... I love speaking to college students, man. I love it. I love to think deeply about theology. I like to take things that are deep and try to make them understandable. That is difficult with my four-year-old, right? It's really difficult. So I'm sitting there going, well, you know, God created man in his image. And my wife's like, take it down a couple notches, right? So my daughter's looking at me like, what are you talking about, Dad? And, and so she's coloring. And, and basically every night we're supposed to say, because Christmas is about Jesus. And, so I, and then we ask her, what is Christmas about? And she says, Christmas is about Jesus. It's kind of like she repeats back to you, so it kind of gets in her head. And you're like, you're brainwashing her. Maybe. I don't know. Um, everyone's being brainwashed. It's just, what are you being brainwashed with? Um, so so the first night I asked her, and she said, oh, yeah, Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. And then the last time I just asked her one more time, I said, so what is Christmas about? She said, it's about Jesus. Like with authority, man. And then she said, and. I was like, And. Diego. It's about Diego, too. And I'm like, no, it's not about Diego. I'm like, Diego is not going on the Jesse tree, okay? It's not going to be like Isaac and Diego's hanging out there with Dora on the Jesse tree. They're not a part of the lineage of Christ. 
no Hispanic people in that lineage. Nothing against Hispanic people, just Diego's not there. So, um, man, I'll just start reading the Bible now. Okay, John chapter 1, let's go there. And uh, last week we started a series called Incarnate. We're talking about the incarnation of Christ, of God becoming flesh. And we really found out a couple things last week. We found out that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that means this, that the Word is the Logos, the reason for all things. So John is being really smart here in communicating with his audience. He knows there's Greek people and there's Jewish people, and so he uses a word that would communicate to both audiences, Logos, the reason, the purpose, the creative power behind all things. So he uses that word. So if you're reading along and you go, okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here's what John wants to do. He wants to, in those first couple verses, as we saw last week, make this massive picture for this word. It is God, and it has personality. It's not some impersonal force. It's not destiny, and it's not fate. It is God. But then he gets really personal. As you read through this, if you're reading it for the first time, That's really difficult for me and for you, because many of us are very familiar with the Bible. We're almost so familiar with the Bible, it ceases to affect us anymore. But if you read this, like you're reading it for the first time, learning all this for the first time, when you get to verse 14, John wants you to just take a double take for a second. Because he's talked about this word that is the creator of all things. And then he gets to verse 14, and here's what he says. And this word... The purpose for all things, the creator of all things, God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we get to that point, He wants you to stop and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) The Word became flesh and dwelt among us? The Word became flesh and stepped into its creation. The Word became flesh, became a man, and lived like we did? This is supposed to make us stop and go, oh my goodness, I cannot believe it. But how often do we read through that and go, oh yeah, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, sweet. But, But our response is not supposed to be that. Our response is supposed to be awe. It's supposed to be wonder. That Jesus was God, as we established last week, and he did not leave any other option open for us, but also that Jesus became a man. He's human. He's 100% God, and he's 100% human. Now, this blows my mind. So here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm just going to go ahead and lay this out for you here. I'm going to tell you where we're going. Throw a little map out for you. The first half of this thing, this is going to be kind of two parts here. The first half is going to be insanely theological, like, like it's almost going to be seminary clashes, Okay. And, and the second part is going to take all that, and we're going to make it practical for your life. We're going to at least attempt to do that. The Apostle Paul did that when he wrote all of his letters to churches. I think it's a pretty good model. I'll stick to it. So here's the deal. All throughout history, people have really been trying to take this idea that Jesus was God, like we saw last week, and put it with this idea that Jesus is fully human. I mean, you explain that to me. If I went to anybody on the street and I just said, in, in, in a paragraph, can you explain to me how the humanity of Jesus... The flesh, the man, works with the divinity of Jesus. 
Because what the Bible teaches and what we proclaim, even as a church, is that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. In his becoming flesh, it did not lose any of his divinity. He was still fully God. And we're going to talk about why that's important in just a second. So for years, people have been trying to put these two things together. They're almost irreconcilable. And what I want to do for you is show you um, some ways that we don't put this together, okay? And maybe this is how you thought about Jesus and, and his humanity and his divinity working together, right? We have a lot of us actually walk around with some very kind of messed up thoughts about how Jesus became a man. We just don't know it. There are people throughout history that have been trying to figure out, and there are people throughout history that have been getting it wrong, especially early church history. So we're going to walk through some of this stuff. They're going to be on the screen for you. And there's a couple theories. So I'm going to throw out some theories to you. They'll be on the screen. You can write them down. Or if you don't want to write them down, I'll email you my notes later. But the first kind of wrong, we call this heresy. Okay. The first kind of wrong heresy is people are trying to figure out how Christ's divinity and humanity work together was a little thing called uh, Ebionism. Ebionism, basically. Um, basically, it's this early heresy about Christ's nature that originated from this Jewish sect called the Ebionites. And, and here's kind of what the Ebionites taught about Jesus. They taught that he was a good teacher, and he was a prophet, but he was not divine. For many of the Ebionites, they believed that he was not really God because, in a sense, he was created. He wasn't always with God. So the Ebionites, they, they got it wrong. They said he was just a teacher. He was not really God. We kind of dealt with that last week. The next one, which will be on the screen too, is Nestorianism. Nestorianism. Everybody say Nestorianism. Nestorianism. Okay, now this one's really fun. Okay. Nestorianism believed this, that Jesus was really two distinct persons. And it's named after a guy named Nestorius who believed and taught that Jesus was two distinct persons. Now, let me explain how this works. You may say, oh, okay, that sounds right. Well, it sounds right, but maybe not when you start thinking about it. Here's what Nestorius believed, is that Jesus was, when you looked at him, one fleshly person. But within that one body were two people. It, it was almost like... It was almost like this movie that was made in the early 80s. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You probably haven't. I, it, I was a kid when I watched it as reruns. So maybe you've never seen it. But it's a movie called All of Me, and it's got Steve Martin in it. In the movie, Steve Martin, now this is just crazy. It wouldn't happen. I don't believe this. But this lady dies, and basically a curse is put on Steve Martin, and she enters Steve Martin's body. So Steve Martin is a man. And there's a woman residing in Steve Martin. So this gets really hilarious throughout the movie because he starts like walking like a woman and prissing like a woman, and he'll talk like a woman at points. So the whole movie is Steve Martin trying to get her out of him and fighting. It's like they're fighting with one another. Steve's the man, the woman's in him, and they're these two distinct people fighting with one another. That's basically what Nestorius said many, many years before this movie was made, that Jesus is this freak show that's basically like one person God, one person Jesus, and they keep fighting one another. That's heresy. I'll tell you why in a little bit. The second one, the third one actually, is adoptionism. Now, I'm all for adoption, but not for this kind of adoption. Adoptionism teaches this. Basically, it was a heresy that said that Jesus was not divine. When Jesus was born, he wasn't divine. He wasn't God. But that he was a good enough man that God looked down on him and said, I've got to find somebody to be the Messiah. I've got to adopt, in a sense, somebody to be the Messiah and die for the sins of the world. I need to find someone really good. I pick Jesus. And here's where they go to for that. When Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit ascended on him like a dove. And God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Adoptionists will say, well, that moment, in that moment, that is when God adopted Jesus. 
And at that moment, Jesus became the Messiah. But before that, he was not the Messiah. In fact, he really didn't know what he was doing or who he was. It's called adoptionism. That's not correct. So then there's a fourth one that's wrong. It's called docetism. Everybody say docetism. That's a fun one. This is a great one. This one's hilarious, actually, to me. Docetists were the people who believed that Jesus was not really in the flesh, like that he was kind of a divine emanation, like a spirit. And so if you were to walk up to Jesus and try to like give Jesus like high five or something, you would just go right through Jesus. That he appeared to be in the flesh, but he wasn't really in the flesh. And so his whole life and his death on the cross was just an illusion to trick Satan. But he wasn't really a man. Like you could go up and like dropkick Jesus and you're just going to fly right through him. It's a pretty sweet trick. He's like, hey, you got me, right? I'm Jesus. You can't punch me, okay? So the docetists didn't really believe that he was touchable, that he was in the flesh. Then there's another guy who came along. This is really hard for me to pronounce, but um, Eutysianism. Eutysianism, okay? That's, that's a mouthful. This one believed, now I love this. This is similar to Nestorianism, but a little bit different. They believed that Jesus had one nature that was confused, and it was a mix of divine and human. Here's here's how I like to describe this one. The the Eutysianism is this. Jesus is a schizo, right? He does not know who he is. That's what this, this theory about Jesus' humanity and divinity is. Basically, he's got one nature, but it's this confused confusing mix of divine and human. So he's always trying to figure out who he is. And they actually would teach that Jesus, at some points in his life, didn't really know he was the Son of God. He didn't really know that he was going to die on the cross. It's ridiculous. So that is Eutysianism. The next one is an, is an interesting one, too. It's a Polynarianism. Polynarianism. Name your son that someday. Um, and this says this, that Christ was simply a divine mind in a human body. He was driven by this divine mind, and so at times he would do things that were divine, but he was in a human body. All of these things were considered heresy. Now, nowadays, you can get on TV and preach to 60,000 people heresy, and you can be a star. You can write books and sell them out and be a heretic, right? But back then, when when you committed heresy, a lot of times they killed you, right? So some of these people died, because they were preaching heresy. So all these people got together and they said, man, none of these guys are teaching anything right about how Jesus and the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus works together. Now, this is really important. Some of you are like, dude, what? Just why is this important? Here's why this is important. Because there's going to be a day where somebody comes and knocks on your door. And you're going to answer the door. And there's going to be a guy standing there with black pair of pants and a white shirt. And he's going to have a tie on. He's going to have a badge that says, hey, I'm Elder, I'm Elder Mikey. And he's going to say he's from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And here's what he's going to tell you. You're going to say, no, I believe in Jesus. And he's going, oh, no, I do too. And I look at those guys and go, no, you don't. You don't believe in the same Jesus that I believe in because you believe that Jesus is not divine. You believe that Jesus was created. When I was in Ethiopia one time, I, was, uh, I had just gotten there. We were on a trip, and it was only three people with me. It was kind of like an exploratory trip. And... Um, I went out on the street. It was like midnight in Ethiopia. I went out on the street to call Rachel for my satellite phone. That sounds really cool. It's not. It's like this massive Zach 
uh, Saved by the Veil phone. Um, yeah, Zach Morris. I'm like, hey, I'm Zach Morris in Ethiopia. What's up? What's up? Um, so I'm standing there in the middle of the street in Ethiopia, and no one's out at night. And I call my wife, and I hang up. And I see these white guys coming. Now in Ethiopia, when you see, you can see white guys ten miles away, and I see them coming, and they're riding bikes. I'm like, no, what are you riding bikes for? So they're riding bikes, and they come up to me, and and then I realize, oh gosh, these guys are Mormons. <laughs> And, and I'm not ripping on Mormons, okay? I know a lot of people who are Mormons. I've had friends who are Mormons. They're just wrong. They're just wrong about Jesus. And, um, and so they're the super nice people too, by the way. Um, I, I usually, you know, like I had a Mormon buy me ice cream one time. So that's cool. So anyway, I digress. So, so they come up to me on the bike and, um, and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? Well, I'm like, I'm, I just called my wife. He's like, oh, what are you doing here? I say, well, we're on a mission trip, and we're about to go out to this village, and we're going to tell people about Jesus. He's like, oh, we're kind of doing the same thing. And he smiled real big. I said, no, we're kind of not. <laughs> and he looked at me, and I was like, I just said, bro, you don't believe the same Jesus I do, and I don't want to stand in here and talk to you about it all night, so peace out. So, um, and then I was like, please let him wreck his bike. Um, bad. So here's what happened. All these people got together at this council, and they said, we've got to figure out a statement or a creed, a belief, so that we have something we can look back to and go, this is what we universally, the church, believe about Jesus. And so they did that. It's called the Council of Chalcedon, and it happened in like 451, and all these theologians and all these guys got together, and uh, it's going to be up on the screen, but basically this is kind of what they said, that Jesus has two natures, distinct, but yet they come together somehow, that he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. It, it's in Jesus. And so I'll just kind of read it to you. It'll be on the screen too. It said, We then teach men to confess one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. Here's what that means. That you don't lose any of his humanity and you don't lose any of his divinity when you bring those two things together. Okay, so that's what they confess. Then he goes on and says this, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, Jesus, and one substance, nor parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Catholics, Protestants, Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, anybody who claims to be under the Christian denomination agrees on this. We disagree on a lot of stuff, but we agree on this, that Jesus is two natures in one dude, divine and human. And that is how it works. Now, some of you are going, well, that doesn't help me at all. Can I just say something at this point? We really like to have everything figured out, don't we? I mean, we like to sit around and talk about you know, free will versus God's sovereignty. We like to sit around and talk about, um, you know, if somebody uh, gets saved and then they fall off into grievous sin, were they really ever saved before? And we just go around and around and around and around and around. And I love doing that too. But at the end of the day, especially when it comes to this, I have to trust the mysteriousness of God. I don't know how two natures, divine and human, work together in one person. I don't, I don't get that. But if I get that, then that means in some way I am... I am infinite, right? If I can understand the infinite mind of God that would go, I'm going to take a man and I'm going to take my son and I'm going to take these two natures. I'm going to put them in Jesus and and he's going to be the God man. 
if I can get that, then, then I don't have to really trust God. It's a mystery, man. It's a mystery how God and all of his divinity that created everything would also have this nature of humanity. And Jesus was human. You ask the question, how human was Jesus? Oh, he was human. <laughs> he was human enough to bleed on the cross. When they flogged him with the cat of nine tails, there was muscle and bone and tendon ripped out of his body. He was human. He was human enough to be distressed. Some of y'all have had exams this week. You've been distressed. Let me tell you about distressed. The Bible says when Jesus was on his way to the cross, he told some of his buddies to pray. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've been there with Ben um, and Rachel Horna, and we went there where Jesus supposedly prayed. And it says that he went off and he began to pray, Father, not... Not my will, but your will. Is there any way that this cup can pass from me? Basically, is there any way that this can be done differently? Because he knew in his humanity how bad it was going to hurt. He was human. And he was so distressed that the Bible says that he had um, this, this thing happen that only happens to people who are under great distress, is that he began to sweat blood. So he was human. And then as he's sweating blood about to go down on the cross, he goes back to his buddies, and his buddies can't even pray for him. They fall asleep. He felt rejection. All of the guys who he had poured his life into split when the Roman authorities came. He felt alone. He was hungry on the cross. He asked for something to drink. Jesus was human in every way. In every way. The Bible says this. If you've got your Bibles, look back at John. It says this, that, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When it says it dwelt among us there, it's a word that's used throughout the Bible, and it's called tabernacle. In the Old Testament, when, um, when the people were in the wilderness, the people of Israel were in the wilderness with God, he said, I want you to to build a tent. I want you to put up a tent, and that is where I will dwell, and I will lead you by a pillar of fire and smoke. So when the pillar of fire and smoke moved, they moved the tent. They picked it up, moved it around. It was a huge, massive tent. So then the tent wasn't good enough, so then God said, I want you to build me a temple. This is where I'll reside. And each of those places where it talks about that in the Old Testament, it uses a similar word, that he tabernacled with them. He dwelt with them. But this was a different dwelling. It says he came to dwell with us. He stepped into kind of our reality. I like to call this that God stepped into the gutter. He stepped into the gutter of my reality. He stepped into the gutter of your reality. He stepped into all this stuff. And when he stepped into our reality and he set up a tent, basically, he tabernacled with us, this is crazy because it's not only saying that he wants to come and be with us that one time for 33 years. Here's what it was saying, is that Jesus is saying, I want to be with my people and my creation in a way that I've never been with them before. And it will perpetuate throughout all of time. What do I mean by that? That God, Emmanuel, is not just Emmanuel for 33 years, then he goes back up to heaven. He sets in motion the way for us to tabernacle and dwell with him all our days. What do I mean by that? And if you look at the progression throughout the scripture, it's amazing. He goes from being in a tent in the wilderness to having a temple. He says, that's not good enough, so I want to tabernacle with my people in a different way. So I'm going to come, and I'm going to become one of them so I can most identify with them. So he becomes a man. But that's not good enough for God. 
He wants to be closer to us. It's not good enough for him to have a conversation with us. So what he does? He dies. He rises again. And in Acts 1, he says, stay here because I'm going to send my spirit to you. And so from now on, anyone who follows Jesus tabernacles with Jesus by having his spirit in you. He said, it's not good enough for me to be around you. I want to be in you. I want to evade you. And 114 says this, that he came to dwell, to tabernacle, to set up a tent in your backyard. Now, if somebody comes and they come and they say, you have a big backyard, which I don't. Fortunately, I'd have to cut the grass. But if they come and they say, you have a big backyard, can I, can I come and, and just take a corner of your backyard and live there? Sure. You can pay me some money and you can have it. And then they pay me the money and then they come and they set up shop and they begin building a big mansion and they put a big, a big fence up. They don't want to tabernacle with me. They want to stay as far away from me as they can. But if somebody comes in my backyard and they set up a tent, they're probably going to need my shower. <laughs> they're probably going to come into my house and eat my food. I'm probably going to see them. He says he didn't come to build a temple or a mansion. He came to tabernacle with us. He wanted to do life with us in a way that would identify with us, so he became a man. And it says he came to dwell with us, and he became flesh. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about this, is that when it says he became flesh, it doesn't mean that that was evil. There were some people called the Gnostics, who were also another heresy. They believed that all flesh and all matter was evil, and so they didn't think Jesus would ever become flesh because flesh was evil. But this is not talking about evil. This is just talking about what you see when you look at everyone else in yourself. He became a man. And it says this. It continues on. It says this, that he became flesh and he dwelt with us. Now look at what it says the last part of this verse. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So he says he comes and he dwells among us. He sets up a tent in our world. He's in our gutter. And he comes to dwell among us, but then he shows us something. It says that he shows us two things. He shows us grace and he shows us truth. If you skip down to the last part of this verse, look at the last part of verse um, 18. It's a pretty cool deal here. It says this. It says that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. So we get that. Nobody's ever seen God, right? Have you ever seen God? No one's ever seen God. So then the question is, how in the heck are we supposed to know God? I'm not going to have a really great relationship with somebody that I don't really know face to face. And this is a phenomenon that's happening now. I post things on my Facebook wall. You post things on your Facebook wall. And people come up to me. When I was at Thomas' funeral last week, there were people I have not seen in 10 years that I did ministry with, that I went to college with. And it was like Thomas, his funeral and his death brought all of us back together. And I saw people, and they were coming up to me telling me things about my life. And I'm like, how do you know this stuff about me? They told me, they were like, yeah, how's that refuge thing going? I'm like, dude, I hadn't seen you in 10 years. How's the thing with Jane? I don't, I, I don't even know you. People come to me like, yeah, I feel like I know you because I read your Facebook. We live in a society where we are more connected than any 
other generation, but we are less connected. I can know everything about you and never sit down and have a conversation with you at all, right? It's freaky, man. People come up to me and be like, dude, how'd that go yesterday? I'm like, get out of my business. Oh, wait a minute. I posted my business to the world, right? (laughs) It's not good enough when it comes to the father for me just to know a bunch of facts about him. Because that's how some of us live. Oh, okay, it's like we read his status update. We're reading the Bible like, oh, yeah, I know a bunch of sweet facts. But we don't know the father. And here's what he was saying. No one has seen the father, so how are you going to know the father? And this is the really cool part. When you're preaching, some of you would know this, but some of you may not. When you're preaching, there's two types of ways to preach. There is exegetical preaching, which our pastor does, and I'm grateful for that. Here's what exegetical means. To exegete means to pull out from. So to exegetically preach something means to take a text and pull meaning and pull purpose and pull uh, stuff out of the text. Then there's eisegetical preaching, to eisegete a text. It means this. It doesn't mean to pull out. It means to put in. So eisegetical preaching is usually very soft. It's very shallow. It's very like, hey, I got five points that will help you live a better life. Right? And it's like taking it's like taking stuff and putting it into the text. But here's what the Bible says. Check this out. This is the word he uses here. I love it. No one has ever seen God who is at the Father's side, but he, the word, Jesus, has exegeted him to us. He has explained him to us. He is Emmanuel, God, with us. And he's full of grace. He's full of truth. And then check out what it says after that. It says, um, actually going up a little bit, verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Here's what he says. He came to dwell with us to set up a tent in our yard. And he's full of grace and he's full of truth. Grace is basically this. Mercy, we're talking about mercy and grace a lot. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The cross, forgiveness, I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. None of us deserve that. We all deserve hell, period. End of story. But he said he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And those two things come together in this guy named Jesus. And then it says, out of the fullness of his grace, we get grace. It was like it was spilling over with grace. And it's the word said. I've talked about that before when we talked about the Old Testament, that it's said love. And it goes back to all the covenants he made with Abraham and Noah. It was always based upon his said love. And he said, this Jesus, this man God, comes full of said, full of grace and full of truth. And then it spills out and it touches us because he's Emmanuel God with us. I don't know how he has been Emmanuel God with you. He has been Emmanuel God with me in many ways. When I was um, 14 years old, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It is a um, debilitating chronic illness where basically um, anywhere in your digestive system you can get ulcers. And for me it was in my large intestine, so it just blew up. They said I had 15 ulcers in my large intestine. When they went in, I was 14 years old. I was, uh, like it matters now, but I was president of our student council. I was kind of set up to be the man that year, right? I was looking forward to that year in school. I spent that year in school, at least half of it, in a hospital. It took out my large intestine. 
And then I spent another few months in the hospital. I learned what it means that God is Emmanuel, God with us in, that day, in those days. He's Emmanuel, God with you. God with us. Becoming flesh to dwell with us. Over the past week, I've, I have experienced a range of emotions. From my friend Thomas um, committing suicide, going to his funeral, and sitting there for two and a half hours, wondering how in the world could he do this to him, to his kids, a guy that I looked up to. In the same moment, when I got off the plane and I was driving to the church, I got the call from Rachel that we passed court with Jane. So I had this explosion of emotion, man. I was like, oh, I don't know what to feel. <laughs> it was weird. I was like, am I a woman now? What is the problem? <laughs> Sorry. But all through this process with Jane, wondering when in the world she's going to come home, what's going to happen, and then this deal with Thomas, and all this stuff, man, God has continued to remind me, he is Emmanuel, God with me, and God with us, that he stepped into your gutter, and he stepped into my gutter, and he knows. He knows exactly where you are and what you're struggling with tonight, because he is Emmanuel, God with you in your joy. And he is Emmanuel, God with you in your pain. And he is Emmanuel, God with you in your financial struggle. And he is Emmanuel, God with you in your questions. And he is Emmanuel, God with you in your illness. He is Emmanuel, God with you in your relationship struggles. He is Emmanuel, God with me as my mother-in-law has cancer. He is Emmanuel, God with us as we wait on Jane. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And no other God makes that claim. And no other God is worthy to be worshipped. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. I don't know how he's been God, Emmanuel, to you. See, it's really important that Jesus come in the flesh. And there's a couple reasons why they're going to be on the screen. Jesus had to come in the flesh because he had to die for sin. He had to die for sin. If Jesus was an illusion or he wasn't really a man, then he didn't die for sin. And if he didn't bleed and die for sin, then... Prophecy was not fulfilled. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies go unfulfilled. And our sin was not atoned for. It was not forgiven. Jesus had to be a man so he could die like a man. And he died like a man. Jesus had to be human because he had to bodily rise from the dead. If Jesus isn't human, then there's no bodily resurrection. And Paul said it like this. If there's no bodily resurrection, then we are to be pitied among most men because we have been fooled. There was a guy who's a theologian, um, I cannot even remember his name now. Oh no, Dominic Crossan. If you ever read anything by him or find his book, burn it. He's a heretic. He said this, he said, if I found the body of Jesus, it would not affect my faith. Bro, if I found the body of Jesus, I'm done. Because if there's no body, bodily resurrection of Jesus, there's no Christianity. It hinges on that. So Jesus had to be human so he could die physically like a man, and he had to be human so he could bodily rise from the dead. Not an illusion. He also had to be human so that he could identify with us. Hebrews says it like this. We have a great high priest that identifies with us in every single way. We have a great high priest who identifies with you. So here's the deal. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows every single bit of it because he has identified with us. In the days of the Old Testament, the great high priest did not identify greatly with the people. Here's what the great high priest did. He lived in his like great high priest palace in the temple. 
And the great high priest, once a year, many of us know this, went into the Holy of Holies and he made atonement for the people. But no one really ever saw him. He didn't connect with the people. He wasn't with the people. He didn't understand the people. He was just this dude who was the great high priest. And Hebrews says this, we now have a great high priest who gets us. He identifies with us. If Jesus had come in any other way, he wouldn't identify with us. But he looks at us and he goes, I want to identify with those people. How do you identify with them? You become one of them. But the last thing is this. Jesus had to come as a man so that he could be the second Adam. You got your Bibles? Um, Look in the book of Romans. I'm going to read this little passage to you and then we're done. Bless you. Look at Romans chapter 5 and we'll start in verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all man because of sin. We talked about that when we talked about Genesis. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those who were sinning it was not the type of transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So here's what he's saying. Look down into verse uh, 17. If because of one man's trespasses, Adam's sin, death reigned throughout the one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in and through the life of one man, Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible clearly teaches, especially in Romans, is that Jesus had to be a man because he was the second Adam. Do you remember when I had the mirror up here and I talked about how sin had destroyed everything, the glory of God, the image of God in us, and then the rest of the story is God's pursuit of us, making all things new? It all culminates here in 114. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is introducing to the world a new way to be human. He's saying, I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to live out the righteousness of God, and then they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to give you my righteousness because you can't get it on your own. And he is restoring all things. And here's what Paul says. He says he's the second Adam. The first Adam jacked it all up. And Jesus steps in, and he is a type. He is the second Adam, and he is restoring all things. He's doing it the way it should have been in the first place, and it's God with us. Pretty amazing stuff. It's a lot of theological stuff, and it should be. Because if you think wrongly about Jesus, it could cost you your eternity. But I wonder tonight how God has been Emmanuel with you. Has it been through pain? Has it been through disease? How has he been God with you? Zach's going to come in a minute. We're going to spend some more time worshiping. But a couple things tonight before we do that. It's very clear in verse 12 of this passage. It says that those who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Only the people who received the word, the Logos, Jesus, did he give the right to become children of God. To experience that community where he sets up in tabernacles with us, in us. Not just around us, but in us. And if you've experienced that tonight, then you've probably experienced him being Emmanuel with you throughout the circumstances of your life. I sure have. So tonight, as uh, Zach comes, he's going to come in a second. 
I wonder if we could just, uh, this is going to be weird. I'll just tell you that. It's going to be weird. If we could just take a minute and um, kind of just make a statement, maybe individually, about how God has been Emmanuel with you. Like, see, for me, it was in my sickness. For me, it was in this process with Jane. He has manifested himself very clearly that he is God with us through every turn and every corner. But it may be different for you. And so, before we begin to sing, by way of just kind of an act of worship, kind of like we've done before where we've prayed and you've just prayed something out loud, maybe a statement, I'm just going to take a moment and, um, and just make a statement of how God has been Emmanuel with you. Maybe it's just saying sickness. Maybe it's saying financial struggle. I don't know what it is for you. But I think tonight, as an act of worship, and it may be very encouraging for a lot of us in this room, if we hear about how God has been Emmanuel with other people in this room and how he's manifested that. So just take a moment. I'll start us. God has been Emmanuel through my sickness. Tonight we're going to um, worship this Emmanuel, this God with us in our gutters, our struggle, our joy, our pain, our tragedy, our triumph. He is God with us. Tonight the truth is this, is that just as Christ incarnated himself to us, he's called us to take the gospel and incarnate it to the world. And so we're going to worship, and then I'm going to come up in a minute after this and tell you how you can do that in a very tangible way next week. Let me pray, and we'll worship. Father God, we thank you that you're Emmanuel, God, with us. God, you could have come in a myriad of ways. You came as a baby. You came as flesh. You dwelt. You tabernacled. You set up a tent in our backyard because you want to know us. You want to experience what we'd experience so you could identify with us. God, so you could comfort us. But ultimately, Jesus, so you could glorify yourself by going to the cross and taking on all of our sin and our junk on yourself and giving us your righteousness to make all things new. So God, we worship you for that tonight.
And we worship you that you are Emmanuel, God, with us in our pain, in our financial hardship. You are God with us in all the things that were heard tonight from this community. So we worship you, God. We say these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship Emmanuel.